Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We are speaking on Friday, April 21st, 2023. We still have no New York state budget. The governor and the state legislature have been passing what are known as extenders to pay the state's bills. The fiscal year began on April 1st. And if you're a regular listener to this show, you know we've been discussing what's going on around the state budget now for months. Uh, we focused a lot on the issue of housing, but there's a whole bunch more being discussed. We also in recent uh, weeks have just discussed the broader political dynamics in Albany. There's a bunch of great conversations for you to find in your podcast feed after you listen to this one. But Governor Kathy Hochul and the state legislature are negotiating what will be a roughly $230 billion budget for what is now the current fiscal year. They have continued to pass these extenders. We do not know when a final budget agreement will be announced. We do know that the day before we're speaking here on the 21st, on the 20th, Thursday, there was news out of Albany reported by multiple outlets that there is basically a stalemate on a whole bunch of housing policy. And it looks like most, if not all, housing-related matters will be pushed out of the budget. That could change, big caveat. Uh, but we know that bail reform and other criminal justice matters, as well as housing, have been taking up a huge amount of the oxygen out of the negotiating room between the governor and the state legislative leaders, state Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, and there are a whole bunch of other things they have to get to, including what we're focusing on here today, two other major issue areas, transit and climate. And of course, they have their intersections that we will be getting to. Today on the show, I will be joined by two leading advocates on those issues of transit and climate to discuss what experts, advocates, legislators are pushing for in the state budget related to those issues. So in just a moment, Betsy Plum, the executive director of Riders Alliance, and a little bit later in the show, Julie Tai, president of the New York League of Conservation Voters. Here on this show, we're talking transit and climate and where they intersect. Just very quickly, to give you a little bit more of a sense of what's being negotiated and debated in Albany, it's criminal justice, it's housing, it's transit, it's climate and energy and environment, it's tax rates, it is uh, how to uh, try to create more jobs and economic development, tax breaks and so forth. There are policies related to CUNY. There are questions about raising the minimum wage and indexing it to inflation. A whole huge list of topics that are being negotiated and will either have decisions made in the state budget or not. If you want a full rundown of the major things that are being negotiated, we have a uh, explainer at Gotham Gazette, 20 issues to watch as state budget negotiations enter the home stretch. Now, that was published when we thought we might get a bu budget deal around April 1st, but it still works because it is the 20 plus issues that are sort of at the top of the list and they are uh, sometimes very broad. So check that out. And if you missed any recent episodes of the show here, find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. Some great recent discussions with elected officials and other experts and advocates journalists, consultants, and so forth. All right, let's get to today's show. Betsy Plum, Executive Director of Riders Alliance, an advocacy group for riders of public transportation and mass transit. Betsy, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Ben, for having me. So we don't have a ton of time together today, unfortunately, but let's, let's hit on the major things that you and Riders Alliance and your coalition partners are really focused on trying to get in a state budget deal out of Albany whenever that may come down. So clearly at the top of the list, you've been fighting for more frequent service, especially related to the subways. Talk a little bit about what the top priority is there. What are you fighting for in terms of the sort of policy and where it meets the funding? 
Great. Absolutely. So we're all waiting for a state budget, but I think waiting is something that subway and bus riders are unfortunately very used to. And so what we've been talking about a lot uh, in the lead up to the state budget is the need to make a substantial frequency investment. And so what that means is investing in more frequent service for our subways and buses. We know that particularly outside of the peak hours, right? Lots of folks have talked, uh, notably the comptroller, about there being a new rush hour. Uh, And so when we look at off-peak early in the mornings, midday, later into the evening, the space between trains can be far, far too long. We're talking 15, 20, 25 minutes being regular. And even sometimes we see that this morning I was waiting for the F train. It was a 15-minute wait. Hmm. That is terrible for the people who are riding right now. Oftentimes the folks who have no choice but to ride, the riders that we need to have them keep riding. But it's also really bad when we talk about returning ridership. So one of the themes throughout the budget negotiations is, yes, we're pushing for frequency, but the MTA just needs to be saved. Uh, They need a substantial infusion of money to just be able to continue to keep the lights on, um, to avoid fare, dramatic fare hikes, dramatic service cuts, really all of the things that would push us into the so-called death spiral. But if we want to not just maintain the status quo, we actually have to grow. And so what we have spent months uh, with... So many activities, we're talking multiple events each week, bringing the voices of riders to Albany and and throughout the five boroughs is that we needed a targeted investment in six minute service, $300 million to run subways and buses more frequently. Uh, And we believe that any state budget that does not include more frequent subway uh, and bus service is a budget that fails subway and bus riders. Now, as you say, there are uh, negotiations, debates happening in Albany and, of course, outside of Albany in New York City and beyond about various uh, policies and funding mechanisms related to the MTA. It starts for many people and it started for the governor with saying, "Okay, the MTA has a fairly significant operating deficit, in part because ridership has not returned to pre-pandemic levels. Um, as you're getting at there, and and you obviously have thoughts about um, how to encourage more ridership by making service better. That makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways, of course, but then you have to also pay for it as you get at. To start, the governor wants to, uh, has her own fend- funding mechanisms for plugging the MTA's operating gap, uh, payroll tax increase, some state aid, uh, modest fare increase that was supposed to have happened a while back, and also asking for New York City to chip in $500 million more per year, something that Mayor Eric Adams has pushed back a lot on. The two houses of the state legislature in their one-house budget resolutions basically uh, scrapped all of that idea from the governor and have their own ideas basically related to increasing corporate tax rates and using that funding to plug the MTA's uh, operating deficit. Does Riders Alliance and any of your coalition partners have a stance on how to do that with the operating budget? And where does your $300 million ask fit into that? I would say we have mostly taken the opinion that so long as the money is green, so long as it can pay for the services that we as New Yorkers and we as riders need, we are okay with it. But I would say it is absolutely vital that any revenues going to the MTA be sustainable, be they can't be volatile, they have to be dedicated, and not all of the funding sources that have been floated are able to be resilient. Um, Some of them are far more volatile, um, and I think that is the appeal to something like the PMT, the, the payroll tax, is that it is more protected from some of the market forces that could create a real downturn in MTA finances, which is part of why we are in the situation we are in with a system that is so dependent upon fair revenues, particularly for operating expenses. But it's also something that's already dedicated to the MTA, right? So we've seen for decades 
money being stolen from the MTA. And that is another reason we are in uh, many of the precarious situations that we're in with our, our transit system. And so the more that money can be lockboxed, the more that it can already be dedicated, the more that it can really be focused on getting the services that we as riders need um, moving and excelling forward, that that is what is most important to us. Mm-hmm. Um on the on the six minute service ask, is that something that's needed? Is your ask for that to be universal 24 hours a day or is that something that can be, um, you know, sort of modified where it's six minute service is the ask for 18 hours a day. But some of those overnight hours are not necessarily seeing quite that level of service. That's been our focus, uh, 17 hours. So (laughs) I'll I'll lower it by one hour, but seven days a week, 17 hours, we're really looking at uh, 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. Got it. And in terms of the possibility of that increasing, uh, especially subway ridership, but also bus ridership, what do we know? Are we able to know about how that level of service well, a how much of a how much of an improvement is that uh, over the current situation, and b do we know how much that may or may not help increase ridership? I mean, there seems like so many things in this pandemic, post-pandemic world we're living in, uh, and the shifts in commuting and work from home, and and all these things uh, feel very hard to know exactly what might. Uh, move the needle, so to speak. And there seem to be some trends that have become baked in. For example, a lot less ridership on Mondays and Fridays. People seem to be going to the offices more in the middle of the week. Um, So what kind of improvement would it be over the current situation? And what do we know or think or estimate in terms of how it might impact ridership? Great. Well, I'll take the, the second part first. Experts have estimated it will increase ridership by at least 15%. Uh, and that's true six minute service, uh, which would be a tremendous that that's an increase in ridership that would six minute service would pay for itself uh, in terms of what it could do. I, I do want to clarify one piece, which is we are fighting for a vision of six minute service. We cannot turn on six minute service across the entire system tomorrow. Uh, we can get to basically eight minute service seven days a week, as I said, from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. on nearly every subway line and major new investments in buses in all five boroughs this year. And then there are some capital investments that would be necessary to get to that universal six-minute service. But in terms of what riders could expect if we are successful this year, um, as I said, it would be taking, it would take a lot of the trains that are running every 12 minutes and drop them to eight minutes, which would be a substantial savings, right? Because one of the things that we talk about is time savings. Yes. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) I'm in budget. I'm in, I'm in budget. Um, but one of the things that that we talk about is if you go out to the, the train station or you go to your bus stop and let's say you have six minute headways, you're not always going to get there right when the train just left. And so you really see riders having two, three, four minute waits as much as they might have a one minute or a six minute wait. And so that is part of moving this in the right direction. You're not always going to have a six or eight minute wait. But I say all of that to say getting down from 12 to eight minutes between trains would be substantial. Um, And in terms of where we would really see these increases, it would be about 50 percent more off peak subway service on basically the lettered lines. Um, So we're talking about the lines that are typically running every 12 minutes um, during off-peak hours, the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, (laughs) J, M, N, Q, R. And then we would see a little bit more um, on the three, the five, the two, and the four to match sort of some of the the more frequent service that, that is occurring, we would see true six minute service on the one and the six lines. That would be a 33% increase in off peak service. Um, and you would be able to approach the off peak service levels that we know are really frequent and wonderful on the seven and the L lines, but it isn't just subways that we've been talking about. I, I think six minute service holds some of the greatest promise for buses. The opportunity to have additional service 
on all of the new redesigned bus routes that are already uh, on the ground and moving and the ones that are to come. We hear all different kinds of things and opinions on the bus redesigns, but I think one area where everyone can agree is that we need more service for buses. Um, and so that's something that we could see with this campaign. Um, we've also talked, you know, the MTA has equity priority areas. Could we actually drive more weekend bus service to places in the Bronx, Bushwick, East New York, Southeast Queens, Staten Island, um, and then the opportunity to, to bring paratransit into this conversation and, you know, the opportunity to have on time being within 20 minutes of a scheduled pickup rather than 30. Um, I want to talk about the, the uh, bid to keep the fare at $275 um, and not increase it to $3, which was supposed to happen uh, years ago. Um, but of course the, the pandemic changed, changed just about everything, including that. Um, but you at Riders Alliance have been doing what you all do so well in terms of advocating, um, for a lot of what we're talking about here and more. What's your sense as we talk here on, uh, April 21st, the budget three weeks, you know, late, uh, still negotiations ongoing. We have very little indication that they've moved really past, criminal justice and housing matters, and they have a whole lot to get to, as I said in the introduction. Do you have a sense of where things stand in Albany, at least in the in the sense that you might be able to have at this point as to where some of what you're fighting for here ranks in terms of the priorities that legislators may be trying to seek in negotiations as they send their leaders into the room with the governor or where, what the governor might be prioritizing? Clearly, she wants to figure out a way and the, this budget will almost certainly find a way to to plug most of the MTA's operating deficit with a, with some funding streams of some kind. But do you have a sense of where some of these priorities, and especially that additional three hundred million dollar ask for better service, stands in Albany negotiations right now? I do think we are breaking through, and that is absolutely our call and um, our need for our legislators in Albany, particularly those in leadership roles, be it, you know, Speaker Hasty, Majority Leader Stuart Cousins, uh, important committee leaders like Senator Comrie and Senator Kruger, um, and certainly the governor to understand that frequency is the only way that the budget truly wins for riders. Uh, and so there's been a lot of conversation around a fare increase. Uh, I think there is a rationale that we have heard for the importance of a fare increase uh, and the opportunity to have a recurring and increasing amount of revenue coming into the agency. What I would say from our perspective is if there is going to be a fare increase, it absolutely has to come hand in hand with a frequency increase. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, we can't just expect that riders will continue to pay more and more for the same service that does not meet our needs. And so that is really why we're pushing on the, the frequency piece. But I would say in all of the proposals on the table, the frequency ask is the only one that has the opportunity to make money for the system. I was just going to say, you're, <laughs> by your estimates, at least, or the estimates you cite, uh, the frequency increase would basically pay for itself. Um, and then uh, the, the fare increase, which Again, there's a lot of rationale for running. You, there could be all sorts of debates, obviously, about free public transit, and, and we won't get into those now. Um, I had some of those, by the way, with one of the leading advocates for an MTA-related package back in uh, a December episode of the show. So folks should find that. I spoke with Assembly members Zoran Mamdani of Queens about this fix the MTA package of bills that are part of the budget negotiating process here that he has helped spearhead with a bunch of other legislators, including State Senator Michael Janaris. Um, so there's there's debates to be had about, uh, again, the pilot program that's, that's being discussed about some free bus lines and, and so forth. But all of that sort of aside for a second, there's lots of rationale around having sort of baked in expected small but regular fare increases to you know, keep up with inflation and help transit uh, systems uh, fund, fund their services. Um, but you're saying increase in um, uh, service can help pay can pay for itself, uh, increase the fare perhaps, and and that money then uh, goes into helping the MTA 
uh, fix its its budget deficit. I only have you for a couple more minutes. Obviously, anything you want to say in response to what I just said, go ahead. But let me ask you about how this also ties in with these very big questions in New York City about um, really just the slow progress on increasing bus speeds, uh, laying out uh, bus lanes under the Adams administration, and sort of how this complicated picture of the MTA as a public authority, the state role, the city role, the city with so much control over the streets and and therefore uh, a lot related to the buses, how it all coincides. Um, say a little bit about how this budget discussion and advocacy around Albany also relates to efforts in the city because you can fund more frequent bus service, but then if those buses are sitting in lots of the same traffic, it's you know not quite the victory that it could be. I'll just say amen to that. I, <laughs> I'm hired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, what's, um, but what's going on at the city level? I mean, explain to people a little bit what's happening, um, and then I'll let you go in terms of um, the the challenging progress on on faster buses in New York City. Yeah, I'll, I'll whatever say juncture they come to the bus stop. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll say two things on the buses. One is we have, as we say all the time, we have the slowest buses in America. And when we look at who's on the bus, it is an absolute injustice when we talk about a more equitable, sustainable, thriving and just city. Uh, But the bus is stuck all the time. The bus has a million and one problems. Many of which can be fixed with either laws that have already been implemented, but the city is falling short on or budget proposals or legislative proposals that are in front of the state right now. It doesn't have to be the way it is. And it is a failure of our political leaders when you are stuck on a bus. You know, when you can walk faster than the bus, it is a failure of our political leaders. And so with the bus in the city in 2019, we won the New York City Streets Plan that went into effect last year. Uh, Mayor Adams, it's meant to build 150 miles of bus lanes and busways over the next five years. Mayor Adams came into office. He said, five years, I'm going to do it in four. Um, You know, oftentimes these things run into trouble because then, you know, there actually isn't money to implement it. That wasn't the problem. Uh, The mayor came out and put nearly a billion dollars, $904 million into the streets plan, right? So there should be more than enough money to build the bus lanes, to build the bike lanes, to build the the street safety improvements that we need. Um, Yet we have had just devastating gridlock um, and inability to move this plan forward, really being um, having our critical bus infrastructure and improvement projects hijacked by local political interests. And the whole idea of the streets plan was it was supposed to give bus riders and everyone else who stands to benefit from the streets plan, which is really every single New Yorker, a law that said, this is the law. We are going to redesign and make our streets more equitable and work for New Yorkers in a fair, more just way. And that hasn't happened. And, you know, at this point, the Adams administration is falling far, far behind the de Blasio administration, which, you know, we had a lot of gripes with the de Blasio administration and how slow they were moving on buses. And so I think we're in a really uh, problematic place for buses. And the difficulty with that is every other piece of of bus improvement, right? We can get a bus schedule that works better for riders, but if those buses can't move on the streets that are owned by the city, it's a really big problem. And And I say why all of this should be a problem, even if you aren't a bus rider right now, is A, all of those traffic and congestion and other problems hold up deliveries um, that hold up the economy. They hold up emergency responders, which, of course, you know, is, is just tragic and devastating in a lot of instances where minutes matter. But, you know, not to bring up another topic, but we hear a lot about overspending right on the MTA's part and how long and how much money it takes for these deep, deep, incredible capital projects. And so if we talk about the city of the future that we want, the bus is that future. It's difficult to build 
new tunnels, um, especially in this city. Um, and so we can have a subway on the streets if we make the right investments in buses. Mm. And I really wish our leaders had more of that vision for the future and the vision that we have seen in cities across the globe that have said, wow, the bus is this incredible tool if we see it a little differently. But I think we are um, in a difficult place with the bus. But thankfully, Riders Alliance and many of our other advocates <laughs> that really care about bus riders, we're here. And I should mention, as part of this discussion about whether the fare will go to from two seventy five to three dollars, and whether there will be increases in service, and and a variety of other things we've discussed that you and others are also pushing for uh, an expansion of the fair fares program, which provides discounted Metro cards to low-income New Yorkers. So that's part of the city budget negotiations and the city council speaker and others are, are pushing for that with you and other advocates. And so that ties into this conversation as well. 30 seconds, uh, just say something because I am bringing Julie Tai of New York League of Conservation Voters on the show uh, right after you here. And I am also speaking, by the way, with State Senator Leroy Comrie uh, on a different episode of the show this week, and he is chair of the Senate's committee with oversight of the MTA. So we're going to talk with him as well. So folks should find that episode after this one. Um, but say, just take 30 seconds on the intersection with transit and climate issues and how you, you're working a little bit with climate advocates as well. And then I'll be able to pick that up with, with Julie for her thoughts on that from the sort of climate side of things. Absolutely. Well, I'll I'll say it in five words. Better transit is climate action. And, um, you know, we know that leveraging our very extensive public transit network in New York City is absolutely essential to meeting our climate goals. And we have a long way to go. Right. We have uh, this is where more frequent service comes in. But New York is in many ways already ahead of the game on, on transportation emissions because of our transit system. But we need to lean into that even more. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity for more linkages arm in arm between the transit justice movement and the climate justice movement. But especially for us to be thinking that that, you know, it isn't just we don't only have like the tools of electrification when it comes to transportation. We have so many other tools that bring people into transit. Uh, and that is something we're really excited for and eager to be working with our climate um, and environment partners on. And, and congestion pricing is where it all meets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's and we don't and we can't yeah. even get 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 to that in this conversation. <laughs> um and, you know, it strikes me, though, of course, what you're saying also has echoes in the housing discussion. And we won't go into that now. Yes. That's, that's, you know, about how housing and especially housing around um, around mass transit uh, stops and dense, denser housing is climate policy as well. And that's been discussed here on on other episodes of the show. I'm going to let you go. Betsy Plum, executive director of Riders Alliance. Thanks for the time. We will see how the state budget shakes out and then we'll be in touch as things then will shift towards uh, city budget season. So thank you for joining me. Wonderful. Thank you, Ben. Frequency is freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And now I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show, Julie Tai, president of the New York League of Conservation Voters. Julie, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm well, Ben. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so you didn't hear it, but I was just talking with Betsy Plum of Riders Alliance as um, someone you've, of course, worked with. And we were talking just a little bit at the very end about some of the intersection of transit issues and climate issues. So let's just start there from your perspective, working on so many issues related to the environment, climate, conservation, energy policy, and more. How does transit work its way into your agenda and your thinking about climate policy? Sure. First of all, I often say we can't drive our way out of the climate crisis, right? There's only so much we can do. We're trying to figure out how we're going to electrify all of our transportation. But the first thing we need to do is help to reduce the amount of miles that people are driving in the first place. And so the MTA is really critical for that. Because New Yorkers use the subway the, the, the uh, commuter rail lines at Long Island Railroad to Metro North and the buses so much, they actually, the MTA alone is responsible for reducing greenhouse gas emissions about 20 million tons. I mean, that's a lot. That's the equivalent of taking hundreds of thousands of cars off the road. Um, it's really quite amazing the work that they do and why it's so important. Um, and it's one of the reasons why in New York City, instead of transportation being the top source of emissions, it's buildings is because so many people are using mass transit. So really making sure that we have, you know, a safe, reliable, efficient, 
trans- transit system is really critical for us to be fighting the climate crisis. I do love the ads that the MTA has um, that says, you know, fight climate change, no driving required is on the subway. <laughs> um, and we, we know how important that is. And that's one reason why one of the one of our top 12 priorities for the state budget this year is getting that funding that the MTA needs to make sure that its operations continue. Um, you know, we're hoping that as part of it, there'll be increased service um, so that New Yorkers know that this is a, a reliable uh, way for them to get around town. And in case folks have come to this episode of the show and quickly skipped ahead to the climate part here, we got into a whole bunch of the details on MTA funding questions, the different proposals from the governor and the legislature and where some of the uh, rubber meets the road haha, um, on all of that <laughs> with with Betsy Plum of Riders Alliance. So find that part of the conversation later. Um, but I will but, actually also, can I just please. add? I was with uh, Jana Lieber, the chair of the MTA and the MTA yesterday, where they announced their climate sustainability framework, where they're committing to go even greener with what they're doing by reducing their overall emissions 85 percent by 2040, which is about 10 years and ahead of what the state is required to do overall, the entire economy you know, for, for under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. And part of that is getting all of the buses to be electric by 2040, which is really quite impressive. It's the largest bus fleet in the country with about 6,000 buses. Um, so that is really important. And it's not important just from the perspective of fighting climate change, but also for reducing air pollution and particulate matter that goes into the air in, in this in, in particular, in environmental justice neighborhoods, because a lot of the bus depots are located in those neighborhoods and, you know, is contributing to asthma and other respiratory ailments. So really, it's it's a climate justice um, provision. And we know that many more people who are low income take mass transit than drive. So that is also why, you know, investing in the MTA and, and is part of climate justice as well. And, and as you get it, especially buses um, and, and talked a bit about uh, bus service, but also not just bus service frequency, but also uh, getting buses moving faster uh, with with Betsy Plum as well. Uh, big issues that cross over from the MTA as a public authority, the state government, the city government and how the, they all have a, pieces of the puzzle there. Speaking of some of the intersectionality here of issues, um, uh, just thinking as we're talking about transit and climate, housing and climate also obviously key crossover. Uh, just to throw a quick curveball at you here before we get to more of your agenda on on very climate uh, specific issues, but what do you make of some of the ch- you know of the governor's uh, housing development proposal, especially? I would say, as it relates to this issue of transit-oriented development and trying to have more housing density near mass transit stops, which again, it all becomes part of of climate policy. Um, what, do you have a position on any of that? And what do you make of some of these reports we're seeing in the last day or so here, as we speak on April twenty first, um, about lots of housing seemingly falling out of budget negotiations um, and potentially no no housing deal of of major magnitude coming in the budget. Sure. So um, folks on my staff have participated in in two coalitions that are supporting, in particular, transit-oriented development and redevelopment of commercial buildings. You know, obviously, starting with the commercial building side, when you're when you're using an existing building, you use less resources than when you're starting fresh, right? You already have a site that's been disturbed. You already have all the inf- you know the certain amount of infrastructure that's there, and it needs to be converted. So that's certainly you know uh, from a density perspective, which um, the denser you are, the the less greenhouse gas emissions you generally use. Um, we're, we're very supportive of that. And I think in New York City, there is still a great support for advancing some efforts to redevelop commercial, commercial buildings. Mm. Um, on transit-oriented development, I'm going to go back to what I started this program with by saying, we can't drive our way out of the climate crisis. And one of the reasons why, you know, Jana Lieber said this yesterday, one of the reasons why having the train and the subway and a bus stop nearby is really good for climate is because then you have people who don't need to take their cars to get around. They don't need to take their cars to get groceries or to, um, 
you know, to bring their kids to school, right, or to, to get to work. And so transit-oriented development can really help with some of those things. Um, so that has been something that we've been supportive of. So we're a little disappointed that that's fallen, you know, fallen by the wayside, because as we look at where is there going to be growth, you know, the, the closer we are to transit, uh, the more climate efficient it's going to be. Um, so certainly that's been something that, that we're supportive of. Um, we're working closely with the you know, the Regional Plan Association uh, and some of their efforts to try and help address some of these items. Um, so, you know, hopefully some of the incentives uh, that the, it sounds like they're going to end up for trying to provide um, will help to encourage transit-oriented development and reward that um, because obviously there's less sprawl and there's less need for, for greater and more expensive infrastructure the closer it is developed, both from the transportation perspective, but also for water infrastructure, for example. And I'll just exercise another moment of caution here. As I said uh, earlier uh, in my introduction, we get these reports, things are falling out of negotiations. We don't know until we see a budget, you know, a final budget deal. We don't know what's going to be in there. Things can fall off the table. They can be picked up off the floor and put back on the table. So we shall see. Um, there will probably be some housing related things in the budget. It might just be some very, you know, sort of uh, carefully carved fiscal items like rent relief for NYCHA tenants or something like that, but but we don't know. And I've always thought, and this could be way off, and I've talked about this on prior podcast episodes for listeners who might want to go back and check those out if you missed them, with the State Housing Commissioner, Ruth Ann Visnauskas, for example. Um, I al- I've always thought that, if anything, that the Hochul administration should sort of make the linchpin of a must in the budget, it was transit-oriented development. But I I, I won't go down that uh, path again. <laughs> um, so part of your answer there was about buildings and a key focus of your agenda here on uh, climate environmental issues in the state budget relates to several policy proposals uh, and that some of which need funding. Uh, related to buildings and building emissions. So why don't you take a a couple minutes to go through the key pieces of what you're looking for and pushing for in the state budget related to uh, buildings and electrification and climate and, uh, and emissions and so forth. Sure. So buildings, we know, based on the latest inventory, represent about 32% of the state's emissions of greenhouse gases. So we really need to tackle that. Um, It's the largest source of emissions statewide. Transportation runs closely behind it at about 28%. Um, And we know that we need to start with the the lowest of low-hanging fruit is making sure that we're handling new construction, right? It's one thing, you know, how we're going to deal with the millions of buildings we have that are in place now is more complicated than what do we do with all these new new buildings. So we know that in 2021, New York City passed a law that requires all new construction to be zero emission or all electric. Um, And we want the same to happen at the state level. So Governor Hochul proposed it in her executive budget. Uh, Both the Assembly and the Senate included that in their budgets this year. There's a little bit of difference of the details between the three proposals, but that one seems very likely that this is going to get done so that we can stop, you know, building on more uh, constructing new buildings that are reliant on fossil fuels, but rather are using new technologies, which we know already exist, whether that's ground ground source pumps or air, air source pumps or using geothermal or thermal energy networks. There are alternative forms of, of heat uh, and cooling uh, that can be done. And so we're really excited. That one seems like it's likely to get done this year. Um, so we're really thrilled to see that happening. Um, and that's been broadly supported by the environmental community. um, And we think that that would be a big program to move forward. Um, So thinking about new buildings also, there's uh, a law, a proposal called New York Heat uh, that is the New York Home Energy Affordable Transition Act um, that really addresses the fact that there's a law right now that requires utilities 
to connect buildings, new construction, if they're within 100 foot of an existing gas pipeline, um, and to socialize the costs of that new infrastructure across all of the rate payers. Um, and it, it's called an obligation to serve. So the New York Heat Act would stop that. Uh, it would change that rule so that you no longer have this obligation to serve if you're within 100 foot of a gas pipeline so that we can stop socializing those costs uh, amongst all the ratepayers, which uh, you know we've seen our friends at the Building Decarbonization Coalition put out a study that really shows how expensive that will be for ratepayers over the next few years. And it's to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So we're not talking about a small amount of money. And then the other component of that is it's really looking at how are we going to move forward um, so that we are are downsizing the uh, the gas you know infrastructure as as we move towards all electric buildings and decarbonizing our buildings writ large. So that's sort of the second buildings bill that we are working on right now, um, which would really be a big step forward for, for New York to handle. The last thing that we are asking for on the buildings front, right, and then the Senate, sorry, the Senate included New York Heat in their one house budget proposal. So that is is in the mix in the conversation that they're having between the three parties. Mm -hmm. The last proposal that we went to the legislature for is called Upgrade New York, where we are one of the members of a coalition with the Building Decarbonization Coalition, the Sierra Club, the AFL-CIO, the Building Trades uh, we act for environmental justice, uh, an organization called the Agree and an organization called Align. And we are asking the state to lead by example, by committing to decarbonize their own buildings and their facilities um, by 2040, starting with doing engineering studies for 15 of the top polluting facilities uh, to use thermal energy networks, which is basically like geothermal, but on a, on a neighborhood scale, on a regional scale rather than on an individual buildings. Um, and a lot of those facilities are SUNY campuses, our CUNY campuses, is the state, uh, the Empire State Plaza in Albany, the Capitol complex, basically. Um, you know, where here in, in uh, City College, for example, is one of the top polluting facilities. Um, and we're asking them to decarbonize and making sure as part of the work that they're doing, that the work that be, that gets done to decarbonize those buildings and create those thermal energy networks is done with union labor and making sure that at least 40% of the workforce is coming from disadvantaged communities so that we're not only reducing the pollution that those communities are are, are being dealt with from these buildings, but also getting the jobs that will help them move into middle-class union careers. So it's really kind of a win-win. And we know that tackling, if the state decarbonized 15 of those highest polluting facilities, uh, getting rid of their on-site combustion of fossil fuels for heating and for cooling, for hot water, that would actually reduce their emissions across the entire portfolio of state facilities by 40%. And where does that one stand in uh, the agendas of the governor and the legislature? Because so, yeah. that one, I mean, that one, when I first learned about it a while back, uh, that one seemed to make a lot of sense. Now you have to, I'm sure there's a lot of complicated conversations intragovernmentally happening around that, but also you have to, of course, allocate the funding. And it's not just something you mandate on the private sector. It's something the public sector would have to require of itself and then and then fund. But that one seems in some uh, aspects like the type of no-brainer thing that should be at the front of the line. As you say, the state should lead by example. But where, where is that yeah. in, in your understanding of negotiations? So both the Senate and the Assembly included the proposals that we've asked for uh, as an or as, as a coalition or collaboration, as we're calling ourselves, um, in in their one house budgets, right? So it's actively being discussed. Uh, we have asked for this year uh, $115 million, basically $75 million to do engineering studies to get projects shovel ready by 2025. Um, and then $30 million to do um, the, the University of Albany actually has a proposal that, that's already shovel ready to do a chiller plant for their air conditioning needs or cooling needs that would allow them to not use any natural gas in the entire summer, which is really a huge demonstration that, hey, we can do this. 
Um, and I will say SUNY Albany has already done some of this work. Like they have a new um, science building called their E-Tech building. It's all geothermal. Um, I was there at a very blustery day, very reminiscent of my college days at SUNY Albany uh, in February. And it was clear that like there was uh, heating was very sufficient in this building. I know there's a lot of people who question whether or not geothermal will work in cold climates. And I can tell you that if it can work in, at Albany, it can work in anywhere in the state of New York. So we are very hopeful. It is still in the mix of the conversations. I've had conversations with the governor's office as early as, um, uh, you know, early this morning. Um, mm -hmm. We've been talking to the legislature and we are, are pushing very hard that this be included in the final budget um, because that, that we know that that's not the whole expense of this. The point of this is to get us ready so that we can start factoring in the cost of actually doing the projects going forward. And that's, you know, that that's a big sort of just executive branch ask, right? If you get behind this and you want to do it, uh, it it's sort of the thing that it, it relies a lot on the on the executive branch to, you know, it's state state owned facilities and managing, managing the implementation of that. Um, so we'll see if that's something the governor winds up uh, uh, prioritizing. Let me come back to the gas ban in new construction. Yeah. Um, how do you, it seems like there was agreement, um, uh, last numbers I have in front of me that, that with the governor and the legislature to ban these fossil fuel hookups in new construction by 2026 for smaller residential buildings and then 2029 for other buildings. Are you comfortable with that timeline? I, I am. I think this needs to align with what um, they need to be. The state needs to be updating the building code at the same time so that you're having this envelope that's very efficient, as well as the heating components. So I think that those are aligned. Um, you know, there's the governor and the assembly have some have those dates. The Senate has a little bit faster Um Certainly, you know, it could be that the, the 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 bigger buildings could potentially be a little bit earlier, um, you know, on or or the earlier buildings. But we're talking about, you know, it's here we are on April 21st of 2023, right? 2026 isn't actually that far away. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a long 2029 is kind of far away, though. True, but we're talking about much bigger buildings in that case, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, but they're, not they're, they haven't, you know, these are new buildings. Correct. But is the issue there, the, the reliability? House, mm -hmm. I, no, no, I don't think it's the reliability. It's okay. more of like the, the planning design horizon, to be honest with you. Okay. Right? It's like for if you're building a smaller building, it by definition doesn't take as long to get financing, to get permitted, to get, you know, your, your plans approved. Whereas like a bigger, more complicated building, it does take longer and more expense to do that. And we have that in the city as well. It was a split between the smaller buildings versus the larger buildings as far as the dates for compliance, right? right? So uh, I believe that the 2024 is the date that it is for the city, but how we have a law that hasn't been passed yet on you know April of 2023, you know, I'm not concerned. Could they go a little bit earlier, maybe a year? You know, sure, but we, we need to make sure that it's aligned. I think the most important thing is we, we set the, the, we put the line in the sand. Right. And say, here's it. That's it. You, you know, we know that that project developers need certainty. Right. And this provides certainty by saying this is it. We're not doing this any any longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand some of that runway and, uh, you know, just yeah. thinking about the um, competing perspectives, perhaps. And I understand where you're coming from in terms of saying we want it as soon as possible, but it has to be doable and it has to have buy-in and it has to, uh, you know, have the various other mechanisms that would need to, yeah. to make it successful. Um, and the, and the uh, dates between them are, are not that different. It's hard to imagine yeah. because all three of them have it and their, and their bills are not that far apart. It's very hard to imagine that this doesn't get done. Just take a second on that. You know, we've come to a point, maybe partly because New York City passed it and maybe because obviously we're so many years into pretty widespread recognition of a climate crisis. Um, you even have- and, and development of technology. And development of technology. So so many advancements of policy and the conversation and the understanding and, and all of this. Do you ever take a minute and say, wow, you know, we, 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 got, we got this in New York City. We're about to get this probably at the state level. I know you don't want to count any chickens before they hatch, but- um, <laughs> banning gas hookups in new construction is a really big deal. 
it is it is a really big deal and we think I'm sort of glossing it over here to move on to the next subject and no, I'm no, no, myself, but I, you know it, this think is a huge moment this is, this is the package look we started in 2019 with a law that says we have to we have to move our entire economy to be you know 85% emissions reduction by 2050 it's just not that far so this is like in the in the scheme of life and we're thinking about these are the the, the easy pieces Right. We need to get to the hard pieces, which, you know, my house and when I lived in Albany, my house was built in 1853. Right. There are millions of houses of buildings like that in New York, maybe not quite as old as that. But there are a lot of buildings that we're going to need to do things that are, are, are more difficult to do. So the new construction is truly the easiest because you already you, you can start from the beginning and say, OK, we're not planning on doing that. We're going to make our building envelope more more efficient. We're going to you know yeah. make it so that we're not relying on this fossil fuel so that from the get go, it's, it's easier and it'll cost consumers less over time because it's going to be cheaper than relying on, on fossil fuels. Like people are complaining right now about the price of, of gas going up because it was been on a roller coaster ride the last few years because of the war in Russia. Well, when you have these other alternative systems, you know, we know that electricity is much more stable, right? Um, it's much, and it's more regulated. So this will be much better for consumers. And again, on the, on the New York heat provision, that will help us from continuing to build that more gas infrastructure, which costs a lot of money. And so we can move on and start spending those dollars in, in a better way, such as making all these buildings energy efficient. So next year, we're going to come back probably talking about how do we deal with all of the existing buildings that need to be retrofit and transitioned. And so that we can stop, for example, subsidizing heating oil, because right now we subsidize heating oil. Um in the state of New York. And one of the ways that we can do that is with what the governor's proposed, which is a cap and invest program where they would, the state would cap emissions across the entire economy and they would buy allowances um, and the cap would go down over time, right? Until we get to 85% emissions reduction by 2050. they would take the funds that are generated from that and they would be investing those into projects that can help with decarbonizing. Who's and- buying Who's buying that uh, ability to emit uh, greenhouse gases? Who, who, who does the cap and invest? You know, this is a huge program being negotiated. Yep. And yep. again, another one, seemingly, as far as I'm concerned, there's likely to be some version of it in this budget deal. Who who's it going to apply to? Who's going to be paying for uh, this carb the these emissions and then that money going into this invest program? Sure. So the program design would be managed by the Department of Environmental Conservation. So exactly what that looks like, it remains to be seen. Typically, it would be done, you know, like we like we do with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, right? That's on power plants, right? They are people. You could do it on fuel providers. So that would typically happen at the wholesale level, not at the retail level. Um, uh, and then the, the state would work out a plan on how the funding is going to be used. You know, our position is that, you know, the funding needs to be, you know, spending needs to be linked to strong labor standards, right? That is very important to make sure that we're getting a good union workforce, that we're helping to do that just transition from people as we're moving away from the fossil fuel industry. We would make sure that at least we would like to see 40% of the funds be invested in disadvantaged communities, right? They need to see pollution reduction. They need to see improvements and investments that make them more um, protected from the risks of climate change to help the transition to clean energy and energy efficiency. Um, And then I think the bulk of the, the spending would be for decarbonization efforts. So that's really, you know, again, the top two sources are buildings and transportation, where we would need to be doing a variety of programs to help people make that transition. Um, and of course, you know, the reason why I'm not touching as much on renewable energy is because we already have a law that requires all of our electricity to be renewable, or to be zero emission by 2040. And we are on our way to the 70% renewable energy by 2030. So that is happening through other programs. So I think that would handle a lot of those those efforts um, through the New York Sun program, through uh, the, the, the renewable energy credit programs for tier one, tier 
three, tier four. It's, there's a whole whole stadium mm-hmm. of tiers mm-hmm. um, through the, all the investment in offshore wind. Um, so we have that is moving along. Like we're in a in a good space, I think, towards that front. But this is really sort of there's there's four main planks of what what we'd like to see in a cap and invest program. If you are putting in place this cap and invest program, which has a tax, a fee, whatever you want to call it, on greenhouse gas emitters that pay into this fund that then becomes the invest part of it. Um, how does how do you ensure that those extra costs don't just quickly be transferred onto consumers? Look, I think the governor's main plank when she came out in uh, her state of the state with this is we need to make sure that we're addressing affordability, right? And so one of the components of that is making sure that a portion of the funds are redistributed towards consumers to protect them, you know, from the impacts of the potential uh, increases that could be seen um, in gasoline or in, in heating oil. So that is really a major plank. That is the fourth plank uh, that I think mm-hmm. is important um, is making sure that we are we are addressing affordability because we need consumers to accept that um, that this is something that's important for us to move forward. And we think that there's a, a strong way to do that. The other way is to, is how the state chooses to design the program, and I know that one of the items that the that the Department of Environmental Conservation will be directed to do is look at cost containment, um, mm-hmm. and the, they've done that similarly with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative or Reggie, um, is they've had cost containment or you know, provisions to make sure that we're not prices aren't aren't impacting people in a way that is not sustainable. So really the those provisions will help to ensure that. But you know, spending the money in energy efficiency programs, in building decarbonization programs, and you know, how can we support a transition to electric vehicles will all help that. There's a complementary policy that's not being discussed in the budget, but that we have been advocating for called the clean fuel standard or a clean transportation standard that would actually help to uh, help to reduce the cost by reducing emissions in the transportation sector specifically um, and invest. Basically, there would be another billion dollars that would stay within the transportation sector every year that would be available to help reduce reliance on fossil fuels, thereby reducing emissions and also to help balance out some of the costs of the, the fuels. You uh, brought up decarbonization and the bigger challenge of uh, retrofitting versus the laws coming into play at the city level and perhaps here at the state level about uh, banning new fossil fuel hookups in new construction. We're not going to get into it now, but I will have an episode in the near future on the implementation of the other piece of this in New York City which is the big building decarbonization law, local law 97, and lots of uh, movement on that, questions on that about implementation of that big building decarbonization law and its implementation under Mayor Adams and and what's going on with that. So listeners should stay tuned, uh, I would say, in the next month for an in-depth conversation on that. Um, We're in our last couple minutes here with Julie Tai, president of the New York League of Conservation Voters. Julie, I'm sure you're ready to jump in on local law 97, but let's just wait on that. A <laughs> um, uh, couple, couple more quick things. Um, as we talk about all of this, there was this discussion uh, controversy that uh, hasn't been talked about much lately about, you know, Governor Hochul's coming for your gas stoves. Mm-hmm. Is anything like that happening in this budget? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but are they, but is there, um, is there anything being considered or should there in terms of a timeline for phasing out replacement of uh, fossil fuel hooked up heating or cooking in existing buildings? I think the first thing we need to do is take advantage of all the incentives that the Inflation Reduction Act is providing for moving to new technologies um, I think people need to have a better understanding of of the variety of um, of of options they have. You know, there are heat pump um, dryers, for example, for you know drying your clothes, and there are uh, induction stoves. Um, I certainly had one in my house in Albany. Um, you know, it worked great. 
Um, there are lots of people who do them. They're much more efficient. The, the electric stoves are coming a long way and there are a lot of incentives right now. So I think the first thing we need to be focusing on is getting people to take advantage of all of the incentives that the federal government has put on the table. We've been working on it. We have a, a guide that will be coming out soon for, for consumers and homeowners and renters on what's available from the Inflation Reduction Act. And so to me, that is first and foremost what we need to do. Um, so that is something that needs to be looked at at, at some point in time, but but it's not today. Um, and certainly we are not advocating for that as part of the budget. Um, we need to first deal with what are we doing with the, the new buildings? Let's stop expanding the gas network. Uh, let's let's take leadership on the existing buildings. Let's get cap and invest going so that we can have those dollars to, to drive that change. Um, and let's take advantage of all the money. I mean, there's billions and hundreds of billions of dollars literally available for homeowners and renters to go and buy new appliances that are much more energy efficient um, than what they're using today. And Lastly. there's a, but I will note that there is a health issue. Um, we Act for Environmental Justice did put out a study that I think is worth looking at, you know, that talks about the, the health impacts of using gas within the home. Um, so it is it is a public health issue as well as a climate yeah. issue. You know, with but so it's many not other... today. Like today we're not we're not calling for banning all that all those uh you know, replacing of, of equipment in right. in homes. You know, as you get at um you know, this seems again like one of these issues where the incentives as you get at, the education as you get at, you know, these are the things that perhaps could come first and sort of robustly uh, in part to, uh, you know, set a, a better sort of public narrative about, as you are saying, safety concerns, uh, um, among others. Um, but we know that that's not always uh, the order that things go on. It, maybe it does on the advocacy side very often, but when government proposals come out and then political narratives form, it doesn't always go that way. Um, <laughs> lastly, um, the Build Public Renewables Act. This is something that um, the state Senate has really been pushing. The assembly has been sort of cooler on. The governor was cooler on, but she had put something in her um, agenda around allowing the New York Power Authority to build renewable energy. Um, what's your stance on that? And, and do you see something coming through in this budget that enhances sort of publicly owned renewable energy uh, development and projects? So we haven't been as engaged on this. This is not, um, you know, a priority for us. We haven't taken a position on it. Mm -hmm. um, certainly NIPA has a role, right? They, they're upstate. They provide, um, you know, a lot of renewable hydropower, um, they haven't built renewable energy in quite some time. They've had more of a role in transmission, most re as recently as you know they're involved in Clean Path, which is the Tier Four project that will bring renewables from upstate New York to New York City as part of the Tier Four program. Um, and certainly, there's a role for them to play. I personally would love to see them um, work with our friends at the MTA and get a lot of solar put up on their facilities and on the parking lots adjacent to all of them, um, and to look at some of their other customers. Um, they have authority that they haven't used. Um, uh, there's been some changes in, in federal law, so it wasn't economic for them to do that previous, previously. Um, and so, you know, now, now there's something called direct pay. Um, before you had to be a taxpayer because you got a tax credit under the federal law for investing in renewable energy. Now they have direct pay so that a non-taxpayer could accrue a benefit. So basically it's like a refundable tax credit. Um, and so that might change the economics for them, but I think that's why they haven't previously been engaged on this. Um, but certainly we see a very robust interest from the private sector in building renewables in our state. Um, you know, we have 120 projects uh, in the NYSERDA queue that have been approved, um, you know, that are under contract and are working on being built that would get us almost all the way to 70% renewable energy. And we're expecting they're gonna announce in the next few months, um, you know, the next round of offshore wind proposals. So there's, there's certainly not a lack of interest in the private sector. and. You know, so it's it's something that we haven't focused on as much at the league. Sure. Yeah, but that's a good overview for people about where things stand. And speaking it's of definitely still being discussed in the budget, though. And, and speaking of renewable energy and and all this, you you referenced it earlier. We're not focused on that in this conversation, but once we see 
what comes through this state budget agreement, we can sort of now take stock of, of those policies and that funding and then connect it back with the pipeline of renewable energy and all these projects that are ongoing and others that will be announced and so forth and really take another look at where New York State is in its pathway to meeting those um, goals and requirements of the Climate Act of 2019. And we will continue to discuss it all uh, here on Max Politics. Julie Tai, thanks for coming back to discuss all this. We will be following the state budget negotiations closely, of course, with an eye on climate, as well as transit discussed earlier in the show and much more. Thank you very much for the time and good luck out there. Thank you. And I want to say happy Earth Day. Earth Day, of course. We're talking here the day before Earth Day. Wow. Um, I mean, yeah. every day is a green day for me between my <laughs> yeah, Irish that's, and my, that's, my, my work. But. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's the gist of all of this anyway. All right. Th- any 30 seconds, any any other Earth Day things that you want to throw on people's agenda Earth Day uh, calls to action or anything? I, I certainly encourage people to use alternatives to driving as much as they can. Um, tomorrow is, is also a car free day here in New York City. Um, so that's exciting. And, and we're, we're excited to see you know, more use of, of bikes and e-bikes and e-scooters as alternatives to get people around. I personally use use them a lot. And I love those e-bikes for getting over bridges, for example, and hoping to see more electrification of the of the of the e-bike network um, to make it easier and more efficient. Um, and then, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but we'll be talking about post-budget is how much packaging we're producing. Mm-hmm. And how much goes to landfill? So more to come on that. More to come. Sure. Absolutely. Julie Ty, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Ben.